obviously from a medical perspective, machine learning is putting uh, doctors under a lot of pressure. Diagnostics are better through machine learning than they are through human beings. Um, I think the average life expectancy in the world today is around 72. In Africa, it's 58 for a number of reasons. So uh, I don't see anyone here living on borrowed time, but if you know someone who's 58 or older, I mean, tick tock, you know. Um, the other thing you can tell them if you know someone who's 58 or older is that the birth control pill celebrated its 58th anniversary this year, which means there's a likelihood that their parents didn't want them, which is just so cool, you know, I love that. Why I tell you that story, and Kim's kind of going, where is he going with this? Um, Kim is uh, trying to put a dent in that life expectancy thing in terms of, uh, of using uh, blockchain technologies or rather enabling socially beneficial investments into any region in the world using blockchain and token economy. Uh, a bit about her, she won a U.S. scholarship to, uh, well, a U.S. scholarship to the States is, uh, you know, there you go, uh, an athletic scholarship. She's the first student at Rice University to simultaneously pursue an MA in economics and a PhD in statistics, which is amazing. She recently uh, founded Topple. It is Topple and not Top Eye. Hey, Topple, absolutely, which is exactly that. It's enabling socially beneficial investments into any region in the world. She's here to talk to us today about blockchain tech to enable emerging market investment. Kim, it's great to have you with us. Why don't you give her a round of applause? What would you like? Would you like uh, I think I'm good with this one. So, um, okay, hi, I'm Kim. Um, so, first of all, I am actually South African, and I can speak Afrikaans. So, my accent has been adapted since I moved to the U.S. And I, uh, when I finished high school, and I feel sometimes it's good for you to explain my journey so people understand where I came, why I'm at Topol now, or why we created Topol. But I was a um, in high school, just around the corner. I went to Waterkloof. And while in high school, I was really good at math, and I was told that I need to be an actuary. And so enrolled in Stellenbosch and Tux. And after this enrollment process, um, came to my senior year of high school, and I was like, no, I want to make an immediate hands-on impact. So I took a gap year, and I backpacked around the world for a year. So during that time, I was quickly made aware of the concept of um, like Madiba said, when one of his famous quotes that education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. So during this time, I was contacted by some of the coaches in the US. I was, during my matric year, I was national champion for heptathlon here in South Africa. It's the reason I was recruited to the US. And when I got there, I realized how powerful um, their education system is in the sense that as a bachelor, you can, I studied math, my undergraduate is in math, and then I was able to take courses in business, in medicine, and in law, because there it's bachelor's and then professional degree. So I worked um, as a researcher in a genetics lab, actually doing some anti-cancer research for a while, at, while I was in university competing, and I also competed across the country in pre-law competitions, arguing Supreme Court cases. So that's kind of where I started. And then after graduation, I decided to join a global health organization that works with communities throughout the world and bringing technology into these regions. While I was doing that, I realized sustainability is a very big need and bringing low cost capital to those areas was also very necessary because you could just bring some of that money and invest in the areas instead of aiding people into poverty. 
So during that time, I learned that Rice University has the Center for Computational Finance and Economic Systems, short, we call it COFFEES. Uh, it's under in the statistics department, so I joined as a statistics PhD, and now I'm able to do a master's in economics at the same time. I am in my last year. My thesis is actually focused on um, some of these image denoising processes. I worked for Invesco last year, which is like the fourth largest asset management behind BlackRock and all others in the US. And we built a factor failure model, which I was responsible for, and kind of seeing when value and growth is not doing well. And um, my thesis proposal is focused on dynamic investment horizons. So how do we actually find out which of your multi-asset portfolio has to be in some dynamic um, position? When do you invest in which asset? So that's something I've been working on as a thesis. However, Topol has nothing to do with that. And um, in my first year of my PhD, I met our CEO. His name is Chris. He was this ambitious undergrad with a triple degrees in math, physics, and philosophy. So he and I started talking. We, under co coffees, we had this computational finance program where we had these seminars on blockchain, on high-frequency trading, on dark pools on what's going on in high-frequency trading space. So we had all these different discussions. And in the blockchain discussion, a few of us sat down and said, OK, this is a hype. What are the real problems we could solve using the blockchain? And so today, I want to introduce to you a problem that we saw and are solving and are implementing and we're growing. So I would like to start with Topol. And so the mic's sitting right here. So I look very Texan now. I'm from Houston, as you guys know. So um, if it moves around, just know. OK, so what is Topol? Topol is actually a blockchain supporting high-yield investments and economic development around the world. So you'll see a few features up here. But today, I want to talk about the benefits. So our infrastructure utilizes these features. And I'm going to loop back at the end of why blockchain for this specific development investment um, vehicle. So first, I want to frame the problem for you guys. So the reason we did this is there's two reasons. The first one is the UN established what's known as the Sustainable Development Goals in 2015. These are a set of 17 essential technology or essential goals that aim towards reducing poverty, increasing access to education, um, gender equality, and many others. Now, every year, we are about $2.5 trillion short in the investments we're making into these areas. So there's the social piece of this. But then the economic piece is, if we were to, say, take every developing country right now and increase the average income in those countries to just 10,000 USD, which is about a quarter of what it is in the US and then the Netherlands, which are the two places we as Topol are based, and actually less than what it is in South Africa. We have an economic growth opportunity of about $32 trillion that will actually be able to come into the economy, the world economy. So if this opportunity and problem is so large, why does it persist? So let me ask you guys this. How many of you have started your own business? Okay, how many of you would have started that business if the only interest loan that you could have got was a 40% interest loan? Probably no one. Okay, so this is 
actually what's going on. These problems and opportunities are persisting because it's really difficult to finance some of these projects. Now, what you could expect in most of these regions is 40%. This is also not something that can be resolved using bank financing because banks are limited by their interest rates, national interest rates, and the borrowing costs of that country. So the other thing is, if you think about this, it's just a supply-demand thing. There are so many projects in these developing regions that just don't have enough, we don't have enough supply to fund these projects. So I recently talked to someone who works for government tenders here in South Africa, and they have a whole set of projects that didn't get tender, but are feasible projects that need funding. So how do you deal with some of these um, systems? How do you get direct investment, international direct investment into these places? can't just have a single fund or an algorithm. You have to think about restructuring the whole financial infrastructure, or the process by which this happened. Now, seeing as this is a talk about Topple today, we have already done this. So what our blockchain does, it is more direct, more intelligent, profitable for you to actually invest into these regions. Now, before I just claim that, let me walk you through the process of the Topple platform. So the process is as follows. You have a venture within a region. You have an investor. Now, ventures are sourced onto the platform by our global partners, which we call hubs. Now, when this venture is sourced onto our platform, so think about uh, just an interactive website. When these ventures are sourced onto the platform, they're risk assessed. They can also act, so I, last time I talked about this, I know I didn't say this, but they can choose to be risk assessed. They don't have to be risk assessed. So when the venture chooses to be risk assessed using prediction markets, which means we're not the people risk assessing these projects, prediction markets are used, and I'll explain how they're used using this infrastructure later. But this venture is risk assessed, and then with this risk assessment, the investor can now decide if they're interested in pursuing this investment, this venture. So now the next question is, okay, if that is the process, then they would like to interact with them. And this is where our smart contract vehicle comes in. Say they want to do a revenue or profit sharing or grant structure or simple low interest loan structure. All those things are possible with the smart contract infrastructure. So the whole complexity of that contract now maps down into just a single template, which then is translated into this code which can be executed with all these parties. So now you have a venture that's sourced onto a platform. You have some risk assessment of that venture. Investor can now engage with this venture, ask for more materials, ask them to upload some of their past behavior. And all of this is open. So this information is very much, when a venture comes onto a platform, there's information they're uploading with what they're proposing. Okay, so then the next thing that happens here is they decide on the contract, and then they're repaid again via the smart contract. So each of these people are interacting with the smart contract on this infrastructure. As I mentioned before, there's the social and beneficial side to Topple 2 that I want to point out. So every one of these ventures, Vester, Local Hub, I never talked about the impact credit issuer. Now, what this is, is when this is an impact investment, which I will go through this exact same infrastructure five seconds later to show you an example of what we're doing in Colombia right now. But the impact credit issuer is there to say what exactly the impact is that was made by this specific investment. 
So say a project is being invested in, there will be some impact value associated with that project. Now when this impact credit issuer is issuing X credits for whatever the venture is, that gets distributed via the smart contract system to either investor, venture, hub, whichever is decided within this contract. Now, why would you want to have impact credits? Because there is philanthropic money and development funds within these countries that have a mandate to actually buy these impact credits from you. So when you are making this impact, you do not care as an economic investor. However, you have these extra impact credits that you now can sell on our decentralized exchange for people who want to incentivize economic investor to make an investment into a venture and then buy up those impact credits as that incentive. So this is how the system works. Now, it's not just an idea. We've actually already sourced uh, about 10 million investable opportunities that will run through our infrastructure. And as I said before, this is for impact. So most of our projects have some sustainable development goal associated with them. So to make it a little bit clearer, now we went through that infrastructure. Let me walk you through an example. So Sarah is the only generic non-true story about everything I'm going to tell you next. The rest is all very true and people we're working with. So Sarah is a Colombian national who now lives, this is an example, she now lives in the US. She's a 30-something young professional that would like to make an investment back into her own country. She does not want this to be a charity investment. She wants to make some either low interest loan to some organization. So she goes onto the Topple platform, onto our website, and she says, okay, here's a project. It's called Como Gevale. Now, Como Gevale is actually a, um, they're an early childhood education program. Now, what they've been doing up until now, they're in slums of Cali in Colombia. Most of you probably watch Narcos, so they're in that slum. And what they've been doing, they've been working in all these small uh, regions and their schools in these regions, but they're semi-private, which means the government funds half and charity funds the rest. Now, for them to become sustainable and actually grow, they'd like to bring their business model to becoming a food producer to these regions. Now, to become a producer, like bring food to actually be a distributor of food, sorry, not producer, distributor of food within these regions, they need to have... Um, some form of either subsidization or transparency that comes in. So Unilever has actually agreed that they would supply to them as distributors at a subsidized rate if they can show some transparency in the investments that are going into these regions. Now, the other piece of this is the Peace Building Support Office, the UN's Peace Building Support Office, who we are working with in Colombia, are a part of issuing impact credits to this venture because what they've done is not only touching on the zero hunger sustainable development goal, but they're also touching neighborhoods that have previously been hurt by the civil war. So they're also touching on the peace and um, advancement sustainable development goal. Now, a lot of you are thinking, like, how is Como Gevale ever going to be a have access to technology such as this? And this is where the BC Lab comes in. So the BC Lab is a partner on the ground. So they are actually not a hub in this situation. We have been working with there where they introduce projects, ventures, into becoming their own local hubs. So this Como Gevale will have their own ventures in each of these areas they're working in. But they need the technological help. And the BC Labs, who we've been working with to help them set up the ventures in these countries. 
and specifically Colombia, because they're focused on blended capital, is bringing NGOs and financial institutions together within Colombia. So the, as we saw the process, right, we have Como as your hub, you have the Peace Building Support Office saying, okay, for every child or for every family that, let's say 10 registered families, I think that's what they have now eventually decided on, for every 10 registered families within these communities that are receiving some food distribution, I think, it's, I think they said like 10 kilograms for each of these families, they will be issued an impact credit, a zero hunger impact credit. So now we've quantified these impact, this impact, and this impact can either have a predetermined purchase agreement from one of these philanthropic or development funds, or they can be exchanged on the decentralized exchange. So like, the idea is a lot of the countries across the globe right have to reach these goals. Now, to reach these goals, there has to be some macro-level reduction within this country. To be able to do that, they're selling these impact credits. So say Guatemala made some impact and Colombia made a different impact, they could buy these credits from each other so that they can reach the goals of what they're necessary. So now all of a sudden you have a market for making this impact. And even though Guatemala was good at doing a certain impact within their country, they might incentivize the economic investors into Colombia to do another project. So again, like I said, Sarah can decide simple loan structure, revenue sharing, profit sharing, and what portion of the impact credits goes to which party. Now I'm emphasizing impact credits, but the reality of this is there does not have to be an impact credit issuer, no, nor does there have to be um, even an investor. They could actually be a local venture and a hub. So I'm going to walk you guys through a few of other examples we have seen throughout the world. So I'm talking to some diamonders here in South Africa that um, would like to create a transparent supply chain for their diamonds. So they'd like to build a brand out of that diamond, but the idea of this is they have jewelers in Tennessee, in the US, and they would like to have this diamond. They already have the information recorded. They don't, just don't record it anyway. From raw cut to which location this diamond was found at, what did the cut look like, where, who certified this diamond, and the whole process is already being recorded in separate databases, but these databases can't talk to each other because otherwise there is a breach of security between these pieces. So these, the supply chain, they're all just hooking onto the supply chain, uh, this transparent supply chain, and that certificate that comes with your diamond, which you can have a little code on your ring that you have a diamond that's not a blood diamond, that came from a reliable source, the workers were paid correctly, and a lot more sustainable than previously what we've seen. And I think it also comes down to us young generation want to know where our things are going. And that's where I'm going to go to um, one of my other ventures, which is Right Origins. They are a company that focuses specifically on organic products and whether or not these products are coming from the correct source. So this is a project in India, um, in Kerala, which recently had some really bad floods. So we have some other projects with them now to get the flooding stopped. But um, the flooding damage uh, resolved. But what you do is when you scan that little QR code, so this chocolate's moving to the Netherlands. So we're working with Rabobank, which is the second bank in the Netherlands, and Right Origin. So when you, this chocolate gets to the US or to the Netherlands, you scan, you can scan your little chocolate and it will tell you 
You can actually, I think that might work on your guys' phone right now, but you can talk to the chocolate. You can ask it where it's from, how much did the farmer actually get of this total transaction, is the farmer really the owner of this business, are you, very, are you organic or not? That's the other question. Do you really have this certification? And all of this is recorded during, through this infrastructure. Um, then the mahogany trees here, that's one of my favorite. I have a very good friend in Fiji. And I don't know if you guys are familiar that uh, they knew that they're actually the second largest producer of mahogany trees in the world. So things that, go in, that are used in mahogany, Gibson guitars, so Gibson's out of the US, they would like this business to be more sustainable, they would like to invest in them, but how do they invest in them, how do they get their money into Fiji and make sure that it's actually going for the usage of supplying these trees. So another thing we've been working on is down here, um, this is one of my favorite, we have integrated an identity solution which allows refugees, so this is something we're working in Rwanda because one of the guys working for us was finishing up his thesis there um, this summer, but it gives you an identity on our platform, a mathematically provable identity on our platform. So as a refugee, you now have an identity in an investment platform where people can invest in growing your business within that camp without having the nitty-gritty stuff on the other side where you don't have an identity within that country. So now all of a sudden we have refugees that can have an identity where they previously could not have that identity. So that's another project and then Como Gavale, as I said before, um, near and dear to my heart. And then the other big thing that I'm seeing is people would like to take their corporate social responsibility and that's the next slide I'll talk about and they would like to invest they would just like to buy the impact credits. A lot of companies are spending hours and days finding those source projects, finding out like what projects should we invest in. Our foundation is there's X, Y, and Z we can invest in. We want to focus on X, but now we have to go find the project. We have to evaluate the project, but we want to make the sustainable investment, an impact investment. We don't just want to have this be some simple um, charity or donation that no idea where that money is going. So a lot of that, what I'm seeing is people are actually taking that and saying, can we just buy the impact credits? Can our foundation just buy up these impact credits from whichever impact we decide we want, we're interested in? And if we're buying up these impact credits, can we then, because it's a quantifiable way, show that to our shareholders that we are incentivizing this other economic growth with, around these regions? So I put this here because I wanted, as you are all financial um, people, I wanted to just show you what I've seen. So this spectrum is an impact investing spectrum. I did not make it up. It's this pretty good read. Um, but what this is is just to show you the scope of investments that could go onto our platform. So all the way on the left, you have your finance only. So it might just be an equity investment with some you know, sustainable development screen or ESG screen. Right, just someone who's actually making the impact within their environment and social governance within that country. So it might just be someone pure equity, SDG screen, that's what their theme is for their investment. And then all on the other side, you have your traditional philanthropy, which charity or donation. But in between, you have a spectrum of people. So what I've seen institutional, like I said, Rabobank Bank is one of the banks we're working with. And then I have a PE fund in Tunisia that's interested in using this project to source from other African countries. 
because another project, which is not even on the previous slide because we just finalized that, is in the Congo with, um, we're doing solar energy with that project. And they're interested in sourcing some of the other African countries into their, to diversify their own PE fund. So, and then crowdfunding, um, why not use this? Everyone, you see these crowdfunding, I, I mean, even just like with what happened to Kerala in India recently, there was this massive crowdfunding source of like, we want to raise X, and they raised like $32,000 within an hour that they're going to take into this Kerala region. And my first instinct is, sure, you're crowdsourcing on some event that happened. How do I know that money actually is going into Kerala? Well, infrastructure allows for that. Um, individuals can crowdsource together. A few people might want to invest in a friend's business in South Africa which recently someone has asked me that, like, how do you use this infrastructure? I'm a small, medium business. I'm not going to get a loan. You like me. You like me. You want to invest in me, but you're scared of, like, contractually. What do we have to do? How is this going to look? That's possible. Then, um, as Michael just touched on, you have these AI and robo-advisors. So being a statistician, I love that space. Um, I'm very cautious of that space because I feel it's become a very black box world. People don't really know what these AIs are doing. Um, that's why we have this distinction between machine learning and statistical machine learning. Um, but what we've done is I had a robo-advisor contact me and ask if they could scrape from our platform. If they could eventually, you know, as a theme or as an option for their clients, scrape from the platform and say, this is a theme, social impact investment, are you interested, if their clients are interested in making these investments, they can scrape off of our platform easily. This is an open infrastructure. It's not um, us deciding who can be on it or not. And then Aiden Foundations. I have so many, this is almost too many to count right now, um, projects that want to come on immediately. So that's where we're at with like interest. Um, just to give you the technical specs, we're on our first iteration of our test night. We're piloting in India, launching fully in um, Colombia, Q1 of 2019, with the projects there. The reason I have some of these technical spe specs is to kind of show you guys. So blockchain, there's three pieces of this, right? You have what we do is we increase trust, transparency, and access. But then there's a second piece is we'd like to have the value accrual stay a part of this process, which I'll explain in the next slide about token mechanics. And then the third piece of this, you want to simplify the complexity, the friction that's being faced all the time to invest into these projects. So you're reducing all this friction, and you can take complex grant structures where you can have a milestone-oriented project into these regions where money is not released unless certain milestones are reached. So now mitigation can be reduced because you have this one contract that everyone's agreeing upon. And if mitigation has to happen within this situation, you have an exact piece of information who's signed by what digitally because it's not a you had your contract in your language and I had my contract in my language. This is something can be resolved on the ground where the project is. So uh, other piece, which I'll now talk about the implementation of Ouroboros Genesis. We are very proud of this because we are one of the first people to implement Ouroboros Genesis. This is research out of IOHK. It's a proof-of-stake algorithm. I don't know how much you know about the different verification systems. But this is the first provably secure mathematical algorithm that exists. And we are one of the first platforms to actually implement the math in real time. 
And then we use JavaScript just because to make those contracts a little bit simple. We are on our fifth iteration, as I said, of the testnet. And very proudly, we are now sidechain. That's what they call it now. Our blockchain now talks to the Ethereum blockchain. So any ERC20 token, any token at all, can be used to invest in these projects. So if someone wanted to invest Ether into a project in a remote location, if someone wanted to invest Bitcoin, if someone, any Cardano, Monero, any one of these can now be used. The value transfer can be used over our platform. So now I'm going to just tell you about the token mechanics so that you understand like, exactly why, this, why I mentioned that the value accrual should stay within the platform. So there's two things. So you have this investment moving over the platform, right? And traditionally, what happens? We have some banks verifying transactions. So now, keeping the value accrual in the system, if you own our token, if you own the platform's token, you are active and you're actively staking. This is a dual-use proof-of-stake algorithm. This is the simplest way to have access to emerging markets. So if a million moves, about 1.75% of that gets um, distributed as transaction fees to all the token holders in a pro rata basis. So whoever's holding whatever tokens, that's how you're accessing this emerging market investment. You're maybe not making this investment, but you're still getting access to it right here. The other piece of it is the prediction markets. So prediction markets are facilitated by token holders. So as a token holder, you can now participate and be rewarded for the accuracy of your projections of these ventures, macro and microeconomic level. You can be rewarded for making these projections if you were correct, ultimately. If that venture, say, had to deliver 10,000 kilograms, and that's what they claimed in the beginning when they were sourced onto the platform, you had this $10,000 that needed 10,000 kilograms of coffee needed to be delivered, you can now say, I think 80% of that will happen using all the evaluation tools you would like. And I actually have my students at Rice um, playing on these prediction markets right now. And um, so then when the contract resolves in the end, you're rewarded for the accuracy of that projection because we know exactly what they delivered at the end. So that's another piece of it. But then there's also macroeconomic factors. and. I've been talking very serious about, so the question is everyone always asks me then, what is your resolution at the end? Like who resolves that macroeconomic market? We have some very cool statistical methods that we're thinking about. But I've been seriously talking to Wolfram. Are you guys familiar with Mathematica? So we've been talking about they are creating the smart oracle system. So um, me and some of their people have been conversing about my view and their view about smart oracles, which has been very fascinating. Um, just to give you guys a little bit of uh, idea, our protocol is supported by Dapps Foundation. What this means is that all the orbits creation and sale of these orbits are done through this foundation. And it's funded through a locked endowment. So 25% of the tokens that are on this infrastructure are locked in this endowment. And this is where transaction fees that are earned from those 25% will be used for future development and growth of this infrastructure. The idea is for us that have designed this infrastructure to sit back and allow Topple to work as a simple payment system or simple investment infrastructure eventually and us not be involved at all. So to um, give you guys a little bit of an idea, so this is my team, my four co-founders. Uh, Chris, like I said before, physicist, mathematician, and philosophy. Um, very. 
ultimately chief architect of what we do. I just check his sanity most of the time. <laughs> and then Nick is our lead blockchain engineer, tries to execute everything crazy we come up with. Um, Jim, our CTO, finishing up experimental physics PhD now at RICE 2. We all met each other at RICE. That's, we started in coffees together. We are now surrounded by a team of seven, um, both based in the Netherlands and in Austin, Texas. And then we have some amazing advisors. A lot of companies have advisory board and they never, especially blockchain companies, and they never interact with them. We're very interactive with ours. Actually, my own academic advisor for my PhD is one of our advisors on the company. Um, so we have some academic statistician, a former senior economist from the World Bank who's very involved with impact credits and we're with the UN over the next two weeks talking about what we've designed as impact credits and then some private equity specialists, quantitative analysis and some very interesting computer scientists and security groups. So that is it. This is who we are. This is what we've done. If you have any questions, you can either email me, join our telegram or ask me now. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Kim, for that. I, uh, in case you're wondering, that's what Charlie Strong sounded like a couple of years ago. <laughs> Thank you. Nowhere near as clever as Kim. I think I probably understood about 20% of what you said, Kim. I'm standing there kind of Googling going, I just, I give up. Uh, but I'm sure there are questions. This is a clever audience, as uh, Michael said earlier. Are there any questions for Kim? Okay, so you feel a bit like I do. Great. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> but you can always ask me afterwards. I think we have tea now. So I got your origin, uh, your origin comment, which is fascinating. There is a question there. I went out eating uh, a little while ago, and you could actually uh, QR code my fish. And I got introduced to the man that caught that fish, his yes. family. It was yes. wonderful. And I kid you not, that fish tasted better than it ever had, which was great. Some Nero thing going on there. There was a question. Me? <laughs> When do you sleep is the my, question. My academic advisor claims this. She says, you do topple by day and PhD by night, and then you drink coffee in between. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. Yes, I do sleep sometimes. I just flew in last night from the US. So wow. Well, Kim, thank you so very much. Uh, this is uh, some sleeping tablets and an iPad uh, that you yes, can use. I might need it. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Why don't you give Kim another round of applause? Thank you very, very much. Speaking of coffee, it is that time now. I, uh, it, it says tea on your program. Please don't go and have tea. Uh, go and have coffee. And the reason is, here's a little bit of a, this is a genuine study, uh, again, in the lines of flossing and drinking water. Uh, there are probably many of you that try and restrict your coffee intake to about two to three cups a day. Uh, incorrectly so. Harvard did a study some years ago, uh, 20,000 people over 10 years. The study basically uh, surmised this, the more coffee you drink, the less chance you have of dying. Uh, it, it's, it's preventative of so many diseases, diabetes, cancers, but here was the clangor, six cups of coffee a day is good for you. There you go, six cups a day. Forget the white stuff, so avoid the milk and the sugar. If you can have six cups of coffee a day, you will die from less things. Enjoy coffee. We'll see you in half an hour at quarter past 11.